Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17 as we continue our slow but steady march through a new book. Is it still new if you're on chapter 17? Maybe that's a question I should have asked first. still feels new to me. And while you're turning there, when you are faced with a challenge, I want you to know that our culture has some great advice for you. Believe in yourself. Work hard and you can do anything you want. Trust in yourself. Trust your heart. Any enemy, any challenge, it can be overcome, it can be defeated if you just have confidence in yourself. So the platitudes of the world go. And the world likes to place the power to overcome in the individual, believing that if they just do the right thing with the proper mindset, that nothing is impossible. But unfortunately, that's not a very good piece of advice because there are things that we can't overcome and placing all the power in ourselves is never a good idea, according to Scripture. And many have taken that worldly thinking, though, and they have placed it on biblical passages that do not teach that idea. So the practice of placing our ideas into or onto Scripture is called eisegesis. And today we'll look at one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible, one that is fraught with people's eisegesis. Ironically, though, it's also one of the church's favorite Old Testament passages. Even in unchurched circles, the idea of David and Goliath, the story is pervasive. Any underdog defeating a favored opponent gets labeled as a David and Goliath story. Everybody wants to see or be the David taking on a much more powerful foe and winning. But the thing is, that isn't what this text is about at all. Actually, it is about a savior rescuing those who could not save themselves. It isn't a passage on human ability, but rather on human inability. And the lesson is that we need a rescuer in order to conquer on our behalf so that we can follow in behind them. And the primary message of this passage is that because the Lord conquers, we must follow him. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be going from verse 1 through 54, which is a long section, so do your best to listen and pay attention, and I'll do my best to read it clearly. So beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the side of the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the name of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left with the, left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted to his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arach Sha'araim, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So take a moment, take a breath after that long reading. We're going to look at three points this morning. The first point is the blasphemer. So this passage is about a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. But this one battle was part of a much larger war that actually began all the way back in Genesis 3. Ever since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, two family lines have been at war. And if you are to understand this text correctly, then it's crucial you grasp the underlying spiritual realities at play. This whole account is merely another addition in the war between the godly and the ungodly line. And so the questions we need to address are these three questions. First, who is the seed of the serpent? 
Then who is the seed of the woman? And then finally, what does this battle teach us about the end of this great war? Now, at this point, we're concerned with that first question. Who represents the ungodly line in this passage? So the geographical setting of this battle is in southern Israel and the territory of Judah. And this valley was crucial economically and militarily. It was close to the Philistine city of Gath, which allowed the Philistines to be encamped there and well supplied. Now, opposite the valley from the Philistines, the Israelite army set up their battle lines. So both armies stood on high ground, looking down across the valley at one another. Now, since nobody wants to ever give up the high ground and go attack uphill against the fortified army, the two armies sat in a stalemate. Each army stood trying to intimidate the other, waiting to see who would blink first. But then, out of the ranks of this already impressive Philistine army came a terror. A true giant, standing over nine feet tall, comes marching forward out of the ranks. Now, keep in mind that the average Israelite at this time especially was not tall by any means. And if the stature of this warrior was not enough, he was also armed to the teeth. The average Israelite likely wore nothing but his normal robe or tunic in battle. But Goliath was covered in bronze that could easily be undamaged, that he could not be damaged by any weapon of his day easily. He had a massive helmet an immense mail coat, and even leg armor to top it all off. Altogether, his army, his armor weighed some 120 pounds. Imagine trying to walk around in armor like that. The tip of his spear, the iron tip alone, weighed another 15 pounds, not including the weaver's beam shaft that was mentioned. Goliath was essentially an ancient tank, a true visible nightmare. Now, remember, we talked about misunderstanding this passage. When we look at Goliath, we see one who lacks no self-confidence. We see a man who truly believes in himself, his abilities, and his weapons. And his pride is evident to us in the words that he speaks. And there are four elements to this speech that he gives before Israel. First, Goliath introduced himself. And while many translations say a Philistine, another translation and the better option is the Philistine. So not only was Goliath their representative, but he also clearly viewed himself as the best, the epitome of the Philistine army. Well, second, he addressed his audience. And this is really ancient trash talk that we see here. He called the Israelites servants, or really even slaves, of Saul. And this was also to highlight that Saul, the famously tall Israelite king, was not meeting Goliath in battle. Third, he made a proposition for Israel. Single combat, winner takes all, as slaves. So an evil enemy, speaking to you, the people of God, proposes a deal in which you serve him as your master. Does that remind you of anyone? Well, moving along. Fourth, Goliath defied Israel. And you need to know that that doesn't just mean that he was cursing the army. Warfare in the ancient world was always theological. Goliath challenged and blasphemed Israel, yes, but also the God of Israel. So the challenge has been made by the seed of the serpent. And in the face of this terror of a human being, Israel was terrified. Saul, the mighty king of Israel, was just as scared as the people. 
Therefore, no one answered the challenge. So for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath came out cursing Israel and blaspheming the Lord. Before the might of Goliath, Israel was helpless. The Spirit of the Lord no longer rested on Saul. No mention is made of anyone seeking help or guidance from the Lord. They were entirely incapable of handling this threat. Before we move on to the next point, what is the big picture of this confrontation? In Goliath, we see the seed of the devil at work. Satan is first and foremost a liar and a blasphemer. And like his master, Goliath was terrifyingly powerful and also spoke blasphemous words. And we see the same evil seed mentioned later on in Scripture as well. Listen to what Daniel 7, 7 through 8 says. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. As I considered the horns, behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now the great things that that beast spoke were blasphemy and lies against the Lord. So too, if you go all the way into Revelation 13, we see the seed of the serpent represented in two beasts mentioned there. They are also terrifying and dreadful and speak blasphemy against God and his saints. So these images, these representations of the devil, they all hold immense power and authority to attack the saints of the church. Goliath was simply one of many of Satan's servants throughout Scripture used to assault the church, the seed of the woman. And all of his servants are powerful, just as he is. We cannot fight that kind of power in our own strength. Just as Israel was incapable of facing this beast, so you are incapable of fighting the seed of the serpent alone. Israel needed a chosen rescuer from the Lord, just as you do. Well, that brings us to the second point, the anointed. So now we need to answer that second question we posed at the beginning. Who is the seed of the woman in this passage? Well, this question is complicated because there's technically two answers to that question. Because there's the general sense in which all of God's people are the seed of the woman. Anyone within the covenant community is a part of the godly line. And there are other passages which focus on that portion of the answer, but this is not one of those passages. And we actually just saw the flip side of the reality in the previous point. The Philistines are all the the seed of the serpent in one sense, but they were not the focus of the first 11 verses. Goliath was. So while all were servants of evil, Goliath was a representative blasphemer. So here we will see that Israel is not the representative seed of the woman. Rather, the one man will take on this function as the seed of the woman. So in verse 12, we see the scene shift from Goliath and Israel in trouble to David the future anointed king of Israel. So just under the age of military conscription, David was going back and forth from serving Saul and also tending his father's flocks. And then in verse 16, we're told that Goliath went out twice a day to taunt Israel. And we know that the total before David killed him was 40 days. Now that may seem like an odd place to write that in verse 16, rather than earlier when the author was telling us about Goliath. 
But this guides us as readers. It sets the stage for David to witness Goliath's blasphemy and for us as readers to recognize that that's going to happen. So when Jesse tells David to take food to his brothers in the next verse, we know what he's going to hear Goliath say. So as readers, we have to ask the question, how is David going to respond to this blasphemy, to this challenge? Well, he delivered the goods to the army and was speaking with his brothers when Goliath comes out. Goliath spoke and we were told that David heard him. Shocked by the evil words of this Philistine, David began asking the soldiers what was really going on. In verse 26, David asked, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David may have reacted with shock at first, but he was not stuck in a state of shock. Instead, that quickly turned into a zeal and to a righteous anger. Here were God's people in front of their enemy and they were doing nothing. A man was blaspheming the name of God, defying Yahweh's people. And notice that David, he doesn't even use Goliath's name here. He looked at the enormous warrior, this tank of a man, and described him only according to spiritual realities. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He used covenantal language to state unequivocally that this man was apart from the Lord and under his curse. So why has no one stopped him? Well, David's oldest brother, Eliab, used this opportunity to chastise David for his words. He accused him of pride, of curiosity, and of negligence in his duties. Now, as the oldest brother, he had some authority over David, but he was really the one that was actually guilty of all three of these sins that he ascribes to David. His rebuke was unfounded, and it serves in this passage to show us that he, like Saul, was unfit to be king. And the most likely reason for his outburst is that David's confidence in the Lord, his confidence over this enemy, highlighted Eliab and the rest of the army's lethargy and fear in this situation. But refusing to engage in the spat with Eliab, David continued talking with soldiers until King Saul heard of it. And then he had David brought to him. And the exchange between David and Saul is one of the most fascinating portions of this passage. David opened opened by offering to fight Goliath. But Saul quickly looked at him and addressed the fact that he wasn't even 20 yet, while Goliath had been a warrior from his youth. And we likely would have said the same thing in Saul's position. How could this young guy take on that monster? In response, David gave a three-part answer. First, David explained that he had been fighting deadly animals for years already. Lions, bears, and any other predators that went after the flocks were struck down. If the sheep were in danger, David went out and rescued them. And Goliath, with his brutish description, had lowered himself to the level of an animal. And so David equates him with one. He says in verse 36, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Well, second, Goliath had defy the armies of the living God. He hadn't just picked up a fight with a random nation here. He was going up against the Lord and he was cursing God's people. And in Genesis 12:3, God promised Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will what? Curse. 
the people of Israel were the children of Abraham. And thus to call out curses on them was really to call out curses upon yourself. Goliath was calling out curses on his own head. And then third, David was confident. Now, he wasn't confident in himself or in his abilities, but in the one who had preserved him in every fight he had ever had. The same God that had saved him from lions and bears was still with him, still upon him. The Philistine had no chance against Yahweh. David's confidence was fully and totally in the Lord and his power. Now, I've thought a lot about this, and I still can't decide what is more amazing here in David's response. The deep theological answer that this young man provided, or that Saul was persuaded by an argument of faith. By the pseudo-king's response, you might even think he had been touched by David's sermon. He said, go and Yahweh be with you. He used God's covenant name to bless David on this new mission. And David is the seed of the woman in this battle. And the irony of Saul's blessing on David is that the Lord did go with David. In the previous chapter, we saw that the spirit left Saul and then fell on David, though Saul still sat on the throne. And the two could not have been more different. Saul looked good in the world's eyes. But he was without the spirit, and so ultimately he was ineffective. Meanwhile, David operated as a type of the Messiah to come. It's not the eyes of the world that count, but the eyes of faith. It reminded me of Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, when it says he had no form or majesty that we could look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. David didn't look like the guy to take on this great challenger. From the Philistine camp. His own brother rebuked him. Saul doubted him. And yet he was God's chosen instrument of rescue for Israel. And so the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil are about ready to face off. And that brings us to the final point, point three, an emblematic victory. So now we turn to answering that third question we pose. What does the result of this battle teach us about the larger war we see in Scripture? We can begin to answer this question by looking at how David prepared for this battle. As we've already noted, Saul was focused on externals and he was focused on strength. It almost seemed as if David's speech had challenged him. But then we see the same old Saul acting again. Saul had in many ways become a king just like the nations around him. He had the armor, the looks and the status of a king. And it was this regal armor of his that he then placed on David to try to help him in his fight, to endorse him, if you will. And so in doing so, we see a physical picture of Saul unintentionally passing on the kingship to David, placing the regal royal elements on him. But what becomes obvious very quickly is that David is not going to lead like Saul led. Unlike Saul, David did not trust in human strength or weapons. Now, if you've ever seen the VeggieTales portrayal of this passage, then you're probably picturing a tiny junior asparagus wearing armor way too big for him. That is not what the problem was. David was probably 18 or 19 at this point. He was fully grown. He wasn't used to the armor, which was very heavy, very wieldy, and it slowed you down. It was hard to move in. Not to mention that he was a little shorter than Saul. Heavy armor would take a lot of practice to move in and use well. 
But more importantly, he knew that Saul's methods were not the pathway to victory. Instead, he went for the common tools and weapons of his trade. A shepherd's staff is somewhat useful in a fight, but a sling is a deadly tool in the hands of a skilled slinger. The Benjamite slingers of Judges 20 were lethally accurate at long range. A good slinger could accurately launch an almost baseball-sized stone well over 200 yards. But even then, the key to rescue for Israel was not dependent upon his sling. The key to victory was not in human ability, but dependence upon the Lord. So armed with a sling and a staff, David went forward to face off against the evil Philistine. Goliath, the renowned warrior, saw a youth approaching him for battle. And it clearly made him mad. There was no glory in killing some kid. So he curses David in the name of his gods. But remember two things here. First, warfare in the ancient Near East was first and foremost theological. And second, again, Genesis 12.3 promises that those who curse Israel will be cursed by God. So Goliath threatened to kill David and leave him unburied, really more ancient trash talk. And being unburied in the ancient world, that was a horror to the ancient person. Yet I believe David was probably actually encouraged by these threats, not discouraged. David recognized that the Philistine had just cursed himself and also failed to understand that he wasn't just fighting David. He was fighting David's God. Therefore, his response to the monster, David's response, was bold and defiant. And that's in verse 45. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand. In the fight to come, there will be no mistaking who achieved victory if David succeeds. If Goliath dies, then it will be proved to all present that the Lord is the almighty God, not the gods of the Philistines. It's God's strength that David is resting in and calling upon, not his own. Then when we get to the actual fight, we see that it's actually very brief because there's only one strike. Goliath went forward in his heavy armor, trumbling along a big giant tank, ready to crush David. Instead, the very first stone that David launches at the uncircumcised Philistine strikes home, sinking into his forehead. And as the phrase goes, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Imagine how hard that giant slammed into that ground. Nine foot tall, wearing well over 100 pounds of armor, powerfully built, crushing down. Then David rushes up, he takes his sword, and he beheads him. The 40 days of Goliath's blasphemy are over, and judgment has come. Now the Philistines at this point, not wishing to hold to that agreement they made beforehand, they fled before Israel. And the army, emboldened by the Lord's victory, pursued and struck down the Philistines for many miles. Israel was helpless until God sent a Savior for them. Yahweh brought a resounding victory through one man, saving Israel. So how does this connect to the larger war going on throughout Scripture between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? The promise of Genesis 3.15 says that he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The seed of the serpent will strike at the heel of the Savior while the Savior will crush the devil's head. And in this victory, we see a picture of this final blow to the head of the serpent. 
Over 1,000 years after this battle, Jesus, the chosen cornerstone, delivered the final mortal blow to the head of Satan. And he did that by dying and rising again. And no one looking with worldly eyes would have guessed the outcome of David and Goliath's battle. But as the Lord told Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And as Jonathan said in chapter 15, verse 6, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Only the eyes of faith can grasp that God can save through one man, Jesus Christ. Only a believing heart can comprehend that Jesus crushed his foe through his own death and resurrection. And yet this shouldn't surprise us too much because we were already told how the Lord works by Hannah all the way back in chapter 2, verse 10. There she prayed, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He did this for David against Goliath as a picture of what Christ would later do through his death and resurrection. So now that we've looked at the answers to those three questions, we need to ask one more. So what? Why does this passage matter for you? Well, three brief points of application. First, you need to understand that you aren't David in this passage. You are Israel, shaking with fear and completely outmatched by your opponent. If you are apart from Christ, then you are without hope in this battle. And actually, unbelief makes you a part of the Philistine army, not of Israel. So you need to believe in Jesus and his victory on your behalf because there is no victory apart from him. Second, trusting in Jesus' work on the cross does not mean that you can be inactive in your faith. Notice that the Israelites were incapable of defeating Goliath, but once he was dead, they were free to push in, fight, and finish the battle. Jesus has bound Satan so that the church can press on and evangelize the world. Your redemption is not a call to lethargy and just to sit back to wait and wait, but an exciting new mission. The Great Commission is a call of the church and we can only pursue it because all authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Therefore, relying on his strength and guidance, you go out and you fight spiritual battles in your own heart and in the world by evangelizing. So that's the second point. And then the third point of application is that this passage is actually an invitation. You are invited to look forward to glory. For the Israelite, this whole battle provided hope that the Philistines would be utterly destroyed and that they could one day live in the promised land of Canaan in peace. Under the right anointed king, peace would come. Of course, the promised land was never meant to be the end of the story, though. Canaan was only meant to point to our true eternal home. So while Satan has been defeated, he is still roaming about until the final judgment. And we look 
forward to the day when the power of sin and evil are completely and totally destroyed. We await the day when we will behold this mighty conquering king face to face. David was a mighty king because he fought in the Lord's strength as the anointed. But a much greater David has now come. And he is coming again soon. So we rest in that hope and we must serve the Lord faithfully now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you conquered when we could not. That you rescued us when we were shaking in fear and inability. And that once you rescued us, you didn't just leave us to sit and watch the rest of the show, but that you called us to a mission. You called us to go and fight under your power because of your victory. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that even as we await glory, even as we await the final consummation, where all things will be brought into subjection, where all things, where every knee will bow before the true king. So, Lord, we thank you for your work, and we thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. pray all these things in his name. Amen.